Welcome back, my friends. Welcome back to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 23rd day of August, 2009. I'd like to thank all of my listeners for their patience during the Corbett Report's summer hiatus and assure you that we are back and will be podcasting as usual every Sunday. So if you have not yet done so, please consider subscribing for free to this podcast by going to the subscribe tab on our page, where you can also subscribe to our articles feed, interviews feed, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, where you can stay up to date with all of the articles, interviews, videos, and podcast episodes provided by The Corbett Report. Also, of course, as always, I encourage listeners who have not yet done so to check out AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, where you can find out more about our documentary project, Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. First off today, I'd like to thank all of those listeners who helped to spread the word about our last article before the summer hiatus, 9-11 and Cyber Terrorism, What If the Real Cyber 9-11 Happened on 9-11? That was an extremely important article about an extremely important break in the P-TECH case, which you might remember from episode 45 of the Corbett Report. If you haven't yet done so, I highly suggest that you listen to episode 45 of the Corbett Report about P-TECH and the 9-11 software, because it is one of the key pieces of the 9-11 puzzle, and just last month, there was a key break in that case. I'd also like to especially thank my good friend James Evan Pilato over at MediaMonarchy.com, who not only produces an excellent podcast and keeps up to date with numerous stories on the excellent MediaMonarchy.com website, he also helped to get the word out about that article by hosting an interview with me. And I will post a link to that interview, as well, of course, as all of the other documents cited in today's episode, in the documentation section of today's episode. Just click on the Episodes tab on the homepage, CorbettReport.com, find today's episode, and click Documentation. That will send you to the documentation list where you can find all of the documents cited today by Time Index. So a special thanks to James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com, and please check out MediaMonarchy.com if you haven't yet done so. Also, as promised, I am back to announce the special info bomb, which I mentioned in the last episode of the Corbett Report. This fall, I will be publishing my first book, Reportage, Essays on the New World Order. This book will be a series of essays on various aspects of the New World Order, from eugenics and climate change to the central banking fraud and false flag terrorism, This will be the culmination of the last three years of my research and study in the New World Order and will be the most important project that I have produced to date. 
So I certainly hope that my listeners will help support me in this project. And there will be more details coming soon, but it will be being shipped off to the printers to begin the production within the next week or two. So I will keep you up to date about that project as it develops. But now we have a lot of news to catch up on from the last few weeks. So let's get straight to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from the New York Times, July 27th, 2009. Power shifts in plan for capital calamity. A shift in authority has given military officials at the White House a bigger operational role in creating a backup government if the nation's capital were decapitated by a terrorist attack or other calamity, according to current and former officials involved in the decision. The move, which was made in the closing weeks of the administration of President George W. Bush, came after months of heated internal debate about the balance of power and the role of the military in a time of crisis, participants said. Officials said the Obama administration had left the plan essentially intact. Under the revamped structure, the White House Military Office, which reports to the office of the White House Chief of Staff, has assumed a more central role in setting up a temporary shadow government in a crisis. Today's second real news story comes from The Brad Blog at bradblog.com, July 31st, 2009. Ryland, a Sybil Edmonds bombshell. Bin Laden worked for U.S. until 9-11. During my recent interview with FBI translator-turned-whistleblower Sybil Edmonds on The Mike Malloy Show, A caller had asked her opinion on whether she believed 9-11 to have been an inside job. Edmonds replied by first saying, As I have done for the past seven or eight years, I have basically stuck with what I know firsthand, directly, my own knowledge, based on my own experience, based on what I obtained, which is not a lot, but it is extremely important. After explaining the difference between what she does and doesn't know firsthand, she went on to explain, I have information about things that our government has lied to us about. I know. For example, to say that since the fall of the Soviet Union, we ceased all of our intimate relationship with bin Laden and the Taliban, those things can be proven as lies, very easily, based on the information they classified in my case, because we did carry a very intimate relationship with these people, and it involves Central Asia, all the way up to September 11th. The bombshell here is obviously that certain people in the U.S. were using bin Laden up to September 11, 2001. It is important to understand why. The U.S. outsourced terror operations to al-Qaeda and the Taliban for many years, promoting the Islamization of Central Asia in an attempt to personally profit off military sales, as well as oil and gas concessions. The silence by the U.S. government on these matters is deafening so too is the blowback. Our third real news story today comes from USA Today. Anthrax case not closed. Panel reviews Bruce Ivins, mail probe. A year and a day after the death of Anthrax mailing suspect Bruce Ivins, a panel met here at the National Academy of Sciences to dissect the investigative science behind the FBI case against him. The committee will only review and assess the scientific information, said Alice Gast of Ley University, head of the review panel. 
we will offer no view on the guilt or innocence of any person or persons. Just such questions, however, surround the still-open case, said Representative Rush Holt, Democrat, New Jersey, who spoke before the panel, which met Thursday and Friday. This was the only documented bioterror attack on the U.S., Holt said. Simply stated, the government suffers from a credibility gap that raises questions about the guilt of Dr. Ivans. Today's fourth real news story comes from Time Magazine at time.com, August 18th, 2009. Can geoengineering help slow global warming? A small but growing number of researchers are beginning to say yes. If we geoengineered the Earth into a mess with our uncontrolled appetite for fossil fuels, maybe we have to geoengineer our way out of it, in effect directly cooling the planet via a controlled experiment to counteract our uncontrolled one. There are a number of potential approaches to geoengineering, but the most popular ones focus on controlling the amount of solar radiation that reaches the Earth's surface. One way to turn down the thermostat would be to spread sulfur particles into the atmosphere, either through artillery or with airplanes, thickening the air enough so that it would bounce some sunlight back. Today's final real news story comes from Infowars.com, July 11, 2009. Obama science advisor called for planetary regime to enforce totalitarian population control measures. President Obama's top science and technology advisor, John P. Holdren, co-authored a 1977 book in which he advocated the formation of a planetary regime that would use a global police force to enforce totalitarian measures of population control, including forced abortions, mass sterilization programs conducted via the food and water supply, as well as mandatory bodily implants that would prevent couples from having children. The concepts outlined in Holdren's 1977 book Ecoscience, which he co-authored with close colleagues Paul Ehrlich and Anne Ehrlich, were so shocking that a February 2009 front-page magazine story on the subject was largely dismissed as being outlandish because people couldn't bring themselves to believe that it could be true. It was only when another internet blog obtained the book and posted screenshots that the awful truth about what Holdren had actually committed to paper actually began to sink in. This issue is more prescient than ever because Holdren and his colleagues are now at the forefront of efforts to combat climate change through similarly insane programs focused around geoengineering the planet. As we reported in April, Holdren recently advocated large-scale geoengineering projects designed to cool the Earth, such as shooting pollution particles into the upper atmosphere to reflect the sun's rays, which many have pointed out is already occurring via chemtrails. Ecoscience discusses a number of ways in which the global population could be reduced to combat what the authors see as mankind's greatest threat, overpopulation. In each case, the proposals are couched in sober academic rhetoric, but the horrifying foundation of what Holdren and his co-authors are advocating is clear. These proposals include forcibly and unknowingly sterilizing the entire population by adding infertility drugs to the nation's water and food supply, legalizing compulsory abortions 
i.e. forced abortions carried out against the will of the pregnant women, as is commonplace in communist China, where women who have already had one child and refuse to abort the second are kidnapped off the street by the authorities before a procedure is carried out to forcibly abort the baby. Babies who are born out of wedlock or to teenage mothers to be forcibly taken away from their mother by the government and put up for adoption. Another proposed measure would force single mothers to demonstrate to the government that they can care for the child, effectively introducing licensing to have children. Implementing a system of involuntary birth control, where both men and women would be mandated to have an infertility device implanted into their body at puberty and only have it removed temporarily if they received permission from the government to have a baby permanently sterilizing people who the authorities deem have already had too many children or have contributed to general social deterioration. Formally passing a law that criminalizes having more than two children, similar to the one-child policy in communist China. This would all be overseen by a transnational and centralized planetary regime that would utilize a global police force to enforce the measures outlined above. The planetary regime would also have the power to determine population levels for every country in the world. Welcome, my friends, to episode 95 of the Corbett Report, the biometric control grid. Of course, the Corbett Report has been talking about the 1984 police state that is being enabled by technological advances almost since the podcast's inception, perhaps most notably in episode 10, the police state's nooses coiling around your neck, and episode 35, the panopticon. Perhaps there is no greater sign that this information has reached the mainstream than that it is now being satirized by The Onion. Concerned about your privacy while using Google? The Internet giant says it understands. Google is now offering users a chance to opt out and live in privacy in a remote mountain village. Tech Trends reporter Jeff Tate has more. Thanks, Teresa. They call it the opt-out village, and it's just what you'd expect from Google. If you want to keep your information private, all you have to do is move to our 22-acre opt-out village and not speak to anyone from the outside world. It's very simple. Just go to the Google front page, click the opt-out button, and in minutes, a van will come to your house and pick you up. That same day, a team of Google privacy experts eliminates your home address, guaranteeing it will no longer appear on Google local pages. And after just two days in the back of a van, you're there. In the village, we can guarantee that there's no chance of Google reading your emails because there are no computers. And because they're also monitored and tracked by Google, there are no banks or hospitals. Residents will be expected to know how to grow food, suture wounds, and bury corpses by hand if they plan to opt out. And Google has gone the extra mile to ensure that users who choose to opt out are given complete privacy in their new home. A 30-foot-tall, 10-foot-thick physical data security wall keeps all former Google users from leaving the village until they decide they want to start using Google again. 
the Opdal village can't even be seen by Google satellites because the entire town is enclosed with a large metal box with no openings. Google says those wishing to opt back into using Google after their time in the village will be allowed to do so if they agree to be branded with a whimsical G on their foreheads to label them doubters. If you don't want to give us complete access to your most private thoughts and feelings, that's fine. Uh, you can just toil in the hinterlands and die young. And Carter says the opt-out village is already getting rave reviews. One of the first village residents sent this letter praising the total privacy inside the village, saying, all alone, no light, hard to breathe. Now that's one man whose data is secure. For the Onion News Network, I'm Jeff Tate. Thanks, Jeff. If you have any questions about the opt-out village, type them in an email to a friend and Google will get back to you within 24 hours. And in just a minute, is your child missing out on teen sex parties? No, of course, there is no Google opt-out village yet. But even the fact that it's being satirized by The Onion shows that it definitely is part of the collective consciousness at the moment to be aware of the encroaching Big Brother surveillance state, something that, of course, listeners to this podcast will be quite familiar with by now. There's no doubt that companies like Google and Facebook have deep ties to the American intelligence establishment, and in the case of Facebook, even received seed money from a CIA venture capital firm. But today I'd like to focus on another aspect of this data collection that is going on right now. And of course, we can only ever hope to focus on one aspect of this system at a time, because it is really so vast and so mind-boggling that it is really impossible to keep the entire data collection control grid in view at any one time. There is technology for collecting the data, technology for storing the data, technology for transferring, analyzing, and interpreting that data. Of course, all of these are related, but it's difficult to put all of the pieces together at any one time. So today I'd like to focus on a particular type of data collection, which is openly and admittedly done by governments against their own citizens presumably to keep us all safe from that invisible Al-Qaeda menace which is everywhere. We have, of course, in previous episodes of this podcast, in the Real News section and in various episodes, examined all of the ways in which new camera technologies and scanning technologies are being implemented in everyday life as a way of keeping the all-seeing eye of the government on the citizens at all times. Of course, we have Reuters articles like Britain Makes Camera That Sees Under Clothes, Daily Mail articles about roadside cameras that detect blood will catch loan drivers who abuse car-sharing lanes. We have USA Today reporting on Lobster Serves as Model for New X-Ray Device. We have The Telegraph reporting on Social Services Set Up CCTV Camera in Couple's Bedroom. We have BBC News could X-ray scanners work on the street? And, of course, many, many, many other such stories about cameras that can also be equipped with microphones to listen to things that are happening on the street, cameras that can be equipped with loudspeakers so that people who are monitoring the cameras can shout at the people who are they are watching, sometimes even using a computerized child's voice to talk to and nag people on the street. We have full body scanning cameras that can see under clothes being rolled out and implemented in major international airports. 
and many other such technologies for scanning and capturing various aspects of the human body. Of course, we know about this technology itself, and we are aware that it is being implemented. But what is actually being done with this data, and what is the purpose behind taking it? These are very important questions that go to an underlying ideology and science known as biometrics. Biometrics is the collection, interpretation, and analysis of various aspects of one's physiology, anything from fingerprints to irises to the shape of your earlobes to any other physical data points of your body can be stored, analyzed, interpreted, and presumably used to create a unique identifier for you. This type of technology can be used in all sorts of ways, but perhaps some of the most well-known are cameras that will be able to tie into databases of people's digital photographs in order to scan through crowds, even crowds of hundreds or thousands of people, in real time, presumably to identify individual suspected terrorists or criminals in that crowd. Or cameras that could identify you specifically by your gait, that is to say, the way in which you walk. All sorts of such technologies are either on the drawing board or are actually being used at the moment. And this field of biometrics is an extremely important and crucial field for understanding how and why this surveillance control grid is going into place. Let's turn to an excellent brief introduction about biometrics and how they are being used in modern scanning and surveillance technology from a YouTube video entitled, simply enough, Biometrics 2. Our bodies are filled with biometric patterns. These physiological and behavioral traits are unique within each of us. Your fingerprints, palm, retina, face, skin and DNA can be imaged and transferred to a mathematical template to establish your identity. The way you walk, talk, smell, write and type on a keyboard can identify and verify you specifically to varying degrees and often without your knowledge. Biometric applications are varied and becoming more commonplace. For example, a nightclub in the UK uses biometric fingerprinting for exclusive entry. Entrance to Disney World are fingerprinted and schools are using fingerprinting to replace library cards. Piggly Wiggly stores in South Carolina have replaced debit card machines with fingerprint readers. Instead of sliding a credit card, you actually run your index finger across a sensor. It reads your fingerprint, compares it with the database, and it gets charged to your account. And police officers can make an arrest on the streets, transmit a photograph to FBI databases, and know within 15 seconds if that person has a criminal record or is on a watch list. Biometrics is seemingly making the world a safer and more convenient place. Or is it? Privacy advocates say not and argue that it's a violation of civil liberties. 
Jay Stanley is from the American Civil Liberties Union. He spoke to us about biometrics, its applications, and some of the privacy issues it's raised. Um, you know, technologies like biometrics really highlight the need for the United States to do what every other industrialized country has done, which is to enact a comprehensive, overarching privacy law. Biometrics will evolve into or be allowed to become a means of tracking individuals um, on a mass level across their lives. More and more data about each of our activities is being tracked and recorded. The court's interpretation of the Fourth Amendment has not kept up with all these new technologies. As it's pretty much the Wild West in the United States when it comes to the private sector. Forty-five days after 9-11, the Patriot Act was passed by a wide margin in Congress. It's increased the ability of law enforcement agencies to search personal records for intelligence gathering purposes. It's been criticised from its inception for weakening protections of the civil liberties that set limits for the government so that it can't abuse its power and interfere with the lives of citizens. George Bush signed the Enhanced U.S. Border Security Act and Visa Entry Reform Act in 2002, allowing the use of biometric technology for the identification of people. Under the U.S. Visit Program, all foreigners have their hands and faces digitally scanned upon entry. All countries whose nationals can enter without a visa, such as Japan and Australia, must begin issuing passports that contain biometric data. American citizens will also be affected, as passports issued after 2006 contain a chip. How will the public react? After all, if you're already being forced to remove your shoes at the airport and submit your laptop for explosives testing, surely you won't object to having your fingers scanned as well. The desire to tighten security in every possible way, particularly in America, also means that funds are being made available to deploy technology that was previously regarded as simply too expensive. Russ Ryan from the National Biometrics Security Project talks about the benefits of biometrics for national and personal security and medical purposes. Uh, actually, even today, you see some biometric applications that are taking place in what they refer to as war zones, okay, of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, in Iraq, you have a, a concept of uh, biometrically gated communities. All right. The first of these is a village called uh, Gazalea, all right, and where U.S. soldiers at entry points to that village have captured fingerprints and irises of all of the inhabitants of that village. They've created that database. There are some individuals, some organizations that ultimately would like to see uh, a national form of identity. And of course, uh, there are others that are uh, vociferously against having any type of national identity. It can be done covertly. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to agree to it. It can be done by surveillance cameras. All right. Often, that information is attached to a database of sensitive information, which might be criminal history, medical, financial, or, or background on an individual. The global market for biometrics is expected to be $4.5 billion by 2010. It is a gold mine for private companies. China, 
a leading producer of biometric technology, is developing cutting-edge biometric and intelligent surveillance technologies. More than 3,000 ATM machines in Beijing are equipped with face scanners, which automatically link the user to a network. Biometrics promises to prevent identity theft and fraud. But is it foolproof? Is biometrics yet another advancement on the accelerating technology highway, leading to safer and more convenient lives? Or is it a violation of privacy and civil rights, leading to an Orwellian end? That's right, we are now seeing the implementation of biometric technology for scanning and cataloging the human cattle in almost every aspect of our conceivable future. Now, this is a process that started to unfold, at least before the public's eye, in the middle part of this decade. And by simply typing biometric ID into scroogle.org or your search engine of choice, you'll find literally thousands of articles on this topic. You can go back, for example, to this article from BBC News from the 12th of August, 2004. I've got a biometric ID card. Quote, Biometric testing of face, eye, and fingerprints could soon be used on every resident of the UK to create compulsory identity cards. BBC News Online's Tom Geoghegan volunteered for a pilot scheme and looked unblinking into the future. As I was led up to the first floor of the UK passport office in London's Victoria, the butterflies I used to get at the dentist began to flutter. But as it turned out, the photo booth we passed on the way would have provided a more invasive exercise. The simple 15-minute process to get my own identity card simulates what probably lies ahead for everyone. Biometric tests are likely to be introduced for all new driving licenses and passports from 2007. They could become compulsory six years later. Explaining the purpose of the six-month pilot schemes being held across the UK, the Home Office's Peter Wilson said, This isn't a test of the technology. That's likely to change in the future as things move on. It's the process. We're looking for customer reactions and perceptions and any particular difficulties. End quote. Yes, you can go on and read that article about the digital photographing and fingerprinting and other such biometric tests which are likely to become a part of any and all ID that we receive from the government uh, in the future, regardless of what country we're living in. More on that in a moment. But this article coming at the beginning of the biometric media campaign lets down the guard for a moment to see the ways in which these types of programs are massaged into everyday use by way of using programs like this one, for example, to test people's reaction to the implementation of such a system, their reaction to the process of being fingerprinted and digitally photographed. How will people react when they're put into this situation? But, of course, there's no such thing as social engineering, right? Well, we can trace the arc of this story throughout the years from that 2004 genesis for the UK biometric ID idea. And we can track that, for example, to CNN.com from March 4th, 2005. Biometric ID may snare travelers. Quote, biometric passports, described by some as a global identification card, 
are just around the corner, and it could mean easier travel for business travelers or a hassle for others. End quote. We can see the way that this idea somehow mysteriously begins to be picked up by governments around the world and propagated almost simultaneously in a number of different bills and proposals. For example, from Security Central at Infoworld.com, we get this April 12th, 2005 article, French may have to buy compulsory biometric ID cards. Or we see the register on the 30th of May 2005 reporting U.S. biometric ID request raises ID concern in U.K. Quote, The U.K. government plans to issue its ID card as a passport with biometric identifiers stored in a chip, and the U.S. wants those chips to be compatible with its own scanners, raising the possibility that U.S. agencies could have access to the ID card database. End quote. And although, of course, early reports made it quite explicit that this biometric ID card would be mandatory for everyone, of course it has to be eased into the public consciousness by first giving it to foreigners and identifiable others in society. So, for example, the 20th of December 2006, Guardian.co.uk reports, foreigners living in Britain face compulsory biometric ID cards. And then, of course, we can turn to 2008 in August. Ynetnews.com reported biometric database to be formed in Israel. On the 1st of December 2008, Morocco issues biometric ID cards. July 15, 2009, Times Online. India to issue all 1.2 billion citizens with biometric ID cards. Uh, July 2009, Shinwanet.com. Mexico to launch new biometric ID card program to fight corruption. And on, and on, and on, and on, and on. Of course, biometrics are now being implemented for police work, with fingerprinting being required for speeding drivers in Tennessee, or even blood collection at the side of the road during check stops in the U.S. Or, as the Biometric 2 video mentioned, police being able to upload digital photographs of suspects at the crime scene to compare to known criminals on file with centralized criminal databases. If the combination of all of these different biometric ID and scanning technologies coming together right now makes you uneasy, then at least you are paying attention and you have some natural human responses left. It is not difficult to understand how such technology could be misused, abused, misappropriated, and ultimately used to form the foundation of a scientific control grid. Now it's important to differentiate here because there are two different ways to critique this biometric technology, and one of them is to go after the technology itself. Now, a very good and very well-written and very thoroughly researched example of that was recently posted on the register.co.uk from the 14th of August 2009 under the headline, Color the Lot of Us, The Biometric Delusion, Optimism Beats Evidence in the Drive to Fingerprint the World. 
And that, as I say, that's a very well-researched article that shows quite explicitly how the error rates for fingerprint identification technology are so laughable that a lot of these technologies and systems, even the ones that are being used right now at the border, for example, in the U.S. visit program, are more likely to get someone's identity wrong than they are to get it right. Now, this critique of the technology can take many forms. For example, scientists recently coming out to say that DNA evidence can be rather easily fabricated, thus posing problems for criminal investigators. Or the idea that the storage of the data on these cards is inherently unsafe, with people being able to steal that data by using skimmers and the like. Again, this type of technological critique of the biometric technology is, of course, very valuable, but I think it really misses the fundamental underlying point of what this technology is, what it represents, and what direction it is taking our society. Ultimately, bugs in the system or problems with the technology are theoretically able to be overcome. Perhaps one day a company will be able to make technology that will have a very small false positive and false negative match rate, and the problems in the technology itself will be overcome by sophisticated engineering. But then what? After that point, if they actually do perfect these systems so they really can identify citizens by their biometric details, is that a good thing? And should the government be collecting and storing that data in centralized databases to be called upon by a number of governmental agencies? What is it that we are giving up when we give up our biometric information? Well, as always, perhaps putting this science in its historical context will provide the answer. The father of biometrics is Francis Galton. And Francis Galton was, of course, a very famous 19th century scientist who wrote on a wide range of scientific topics, including geography, meteorology, and statistics, and was renowned in his age as a great scientific thinker. He was not the first person to propose using fingerprints for identification purposes, but he was the first to really start giving that idea a scientific basis and attempting to flesh out the science of identifying individuals by their fingerprints. And he wrote a number of works on the subject. I'll include in the documentation section for today's episode a list of all of the various treatises which Galton wrote on fingerprinting and personal identification. But suffice it to say that Galton was the father of modern biometrics, and in fact, in 1884, he set up and equipped the Biometric Laboratory at University College London. But where did this interest in biometrics spring from? Well, the answer to that comes from an article from the Annual Review of Genetics from 2001, under the title, Sir Francis Galton and the Birth of Eugenics. Quote, because of his vast array of interests, Galton may appear a dilettante, but this is not the case. His research and published work revolve around two central themes. During the first part of his career, Galton was absorbed in exploration, geography, and travel writing. Meteorology was a natural extension of this interest, as the explorer is often at the mercy of the vagaries of the weather. The second part of Galton's career opened when he read On the Origin of Species, 
and concluded that it might be possible to improve the human race through selective breeding. In order to study the heritability of fitness, what Galton referred to as talent and character, he made use of pedigrees, twin studies, and anthropometric measurements. Although he believed that favorable physical characteristics signaled above-average mental capacity, he had no way to measure the latter, the IQ test being in the distant future. Hence, he tried to probe personal characteristics through studies of mental imagery, composite photographs of men with similar backgrounds, whether in crime or in military service, and by developing rigorous criteria for fingerprint identification. To analyze the masses of anthropometric data he also succeeded in accumulating, Galton invented new statistical tools, including regression and correlation analysis. End quote. Well, surprise, surprise, surprise. The founder of the modern science of biometrics and the first person to scientifically investigate the use of fingerprints as an identification tool just happens to be the very man who also invented and coined the term eugenics. Yes, for anyone who has listened to the Corbett Report podcast for any length of time, perhaps this is not surprising. In fact, as we see in modern science, all roads lead back to eugenics, although, of course, this is always whitewashed and scrubbed out of the official history of science. But in order to classify people into better and inferior breeds, in order for the eugenicists to decide who to cull and who to keep, and just as a hint, unless your last name happens to be Galton or Darwin or Wedgwood or Rockefeller or Vanderbilt or Carnegie, perhaps your head is on the chopping block. At any rate, it should be becoming a little bit clearer just how this type of technology can be used and, in fact, as we're about to see, has been used in the implementation of eugenics. Well, in order to get into this incredibly, incredibly important topic, I'd like to turn to an interview which I conducted very recently with Greg Nicoletos of WeThePeopleWillNotBeChipped.com. This is a website for a movement of people who are opposed to the implementation of, specifically, the Verichip, but in a broader sense to all forms of implantable tracking devices and other upgrades which the transhumanists would have you believe are going to make us all into supermen. Well, of course, the entire concept of supermen is something very appealing to eugenicists, so it should be no surprise that, in fact, one of the very first implementations of uh, census technology which was provided by IBM, was used by the Nazis in the implementation of their eugenicist scheme against the Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, and others. Well, in order to get into that history, let's first introduce Greg Nicoletos of We the People Will Not Be Chip.com, and let's listen to a few minutes of this incredibly interesting and wide-ranging interview, which I would encourage you to go and check out for yourself from the homepage, CorbettReport.com. Without further ado, the opening minutes of my interview with Greg Nicoletos. All right, well, why don't we start by just hearing a little bit about yourself and the website and uh, what kind of information you have up on there? Um, yeah, basically, the 
Um, the actual movement started in concept probably about 2001, um, which was when actually the time when Verichip started um, testing the markets were actually starting to showcase that there will actually be a human implantable microchip being released. So myself coming from an IT background, um, I basically looked at and started following the actual company itself and um, as a result when the first microchipping was, you know, actually occurred um, in human beings, um, we waited for, for a backlash really um, you know, coming from civil libertarians or from the churches or, you know, from people basically just seeing this as being an assault on, on human rights. So to cut a long story short, no one else was doing it and that's how the actual movement was born. Um, it started off as a, you know, a smaller movement, obviously just myself and, and someone else. And, um, and now it's got to a point where we've got very good traction. We've got some of the best information regarding... Um, the human inventorying side of things, but more than that, how it actually all comes together um, and uh, really a global agenda at play, which you know covers um, so many converging trends from you know biometrics to um, human inventorying to just total control basically of of the internet as well. Absolutely, and uh, we've touched on all of those subjects on the Corbett Report before, so I'm sure my listeners will be at least somewhat familiar with this information. But why don't we start by going through some of the technologies that have come along even in the last few years that um, I think a lot of people still think it sounds very science fiction-ish, but uh, science fiction is right now and we're living through it. So why don't you go through some of the technologies that are coming out now in terms of human inventorying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the very chip when it was first released was, was basically seen as um, really crude RFID. Um, for the listeners, it's, it's really a glass encapsulated RFID microchip. So um, in terms of its actual miniaturization, it, it's, it's a very good, um, you know, you, how the technology has actually progressed. I mean, when you look at it from a technological point of view, you go, wow, you know, you know mankind has achieved a lot. But the, the actual application of the actual product, I mean, the fact that it can actually be hacked, it's got, um, there, there's good um, um, details now in regards to how it actually can induce tumours in people. Um, even though the technology can be seen as a marvel, the, the question we must ask is, should it actually be implanted into human beings when um, realistically there's other options out there? how the field is all progressing across the board. I mean, as mentioned with the converging trends, you've got now nanotech is really out of control. You have got um, DNA sequencing is, is coming down in costs. Um, you've got radio frequency ID, which is obviously on the march. Um, and to the listeners out there, that's what Verichip is obviously based on. There's a radio frequency ID um, chip, um, which is basically red with an actual portable scanner. So similar to when you actually take your pet, you know, your pet to the actual, um, to the vet, realistically it's, it is the same company behind the actual microchip. The, the only difference is the pet gets nine digits, the human actually gets 16. So the application itself is, has basically come from a company called Destron Fearing who was um, involved in animal implantations, you know, starting about 1987. And the technology has has really passed down the line through some bigger companies. Um, with currently right now Raytheon, who's um, 
the fifth largest defense manufacturer actually manufacturing the very chip for very chip and then delving deeper into the closet you've got IBM who basically provided the the seed funding to very chip in 1999 and that is one thing that they obviously want to keep quiet because when you actually look at IBM's aspirations which is to really build a global information grid even to the lay person if you actually saw what IBM is proposing with you know their comment being building a smarter planet which is really building a totally controlled and enslaved planet utilizing you know the the technology they have Um, if you couple that with a human implantable RFID chip um, you know, on the in in the in the actual IBM inventory list, you'd think to yourself, you know, that this is out of control. So that's why they actually hide the um, the alliance between the companies. Absolutely, and it's uh, an alliance that you've uncovered, and one that's that's disturbing for a number of reasons, including IBM's historical use of this type of technology, or at least the forerunner to this type of technology, which you've uh, uncovered and put in a very effective video, which was, I think, I, how I originally found your website. So why don't yeah. you tell people a little bit about that history of IBM? Okay, what it comes down to, the, what I find, um, it's almost comical. I mean, the, the company that... Um, really forged an alliance with the with the Nazi regime um, was IBM. So you actually had IBM was actually fu- um, founded in about 1896 um, by a German inventor actually called Hermann Hollerith. Now the business that IBM had back then was really there were a census data company. So census data was their actual business. Um, they went on to then develop, which was called the Hollerith machine, which you can really see that as a tabulating machine, similar to um, really one of the first modern-day computers. That's the way you would look at it. So when Nazi Germany basically aligned itself with IBM, the capacity to actually take a census more from a head count and actually move it into a racial census, and you could actually then... um, also categorized by occupation um, and also going back in lineage as well was the way Hitler was able to actually collate information relating to the populace. So, you know, gypsies, homosexuals, um, obviously the Jews and other non-compliant races could have, were easily targeted simply because data processing that the IBM Hollerith machine um, allowed just made Hitler's job more powerful. So um, what people need to realise is the company now that has the census data contract for America is IBM. Now, nothing has changed. That's that's the whole, you know, where where you just shake your head and you think to yourself, you know, is is man ever going to learn? It's, it's, It's as obvious as the nose on people's faces. It's the same game being played, you know, 40, 50 years later. It, it, exactly, that's the case. And I think uh, people are maybe fooled because they look at something like the Hollerith machine and see, I guess, a really primitive forerunner to our modern database technology. And maybe yes. it's difficult to understand how important that was back 50 years ago, 60 years ago. But that technology was, of course, one of the first things it was used for was trying to collate data on citizens to try to come up with these racial ancestries. And that ties into eugenics Correct. and the Nazi regime. And, and I mean... Uh, what people also need to understand is how powerful, I mean, the 
the what Hitler basically achieved back then was he they, were, they managed to achieve a horse census, so where they actually actually um, catalogued um, all the animals recording horses, mules. There was a cow census that was actually achieved in 1940, and more than that, when they were actually looking to actually document and allocate where resources were, they were fully aware that, you know, that butter at the time was obviously a, a major commodity and a major resource. Now, um, with the butter census that um, was actually done, it was actually found that the Danes um, were basically, you know, hoarding large amounts of butter. So when when you start putting it into those terms and you see what was actually possible with the Hollerith machine back in World War II, and now you've got machines that can basically form, you know, or compute, you know, trillions of computations basically in, in a short space of time and with Moore's Law being in place where, you know, technology is obviously duplicating every 18 months, maybe not by speed anymore, but definitely by capacity, and then you have IBM basically stating to us that, look, we are reverse engineering the human brain. We are building the global brain. And when you start going down those paths, the, the mind absolutely boggles as to what the actual end game is. It certainly does. And we've talked a little bit about the specific technologies that are, that are involved in this, but let's step back and look at that bigger picture. So from your research and your analysis, what, what do you think is the bigger picture? Where is this type of technology taking us? Um, okay, what it comes down to is, um, okay, I'll go back one step. You've, you've got realistically what's going to be the forerunner to this all actually being implemented is radio frequency ID. So you have got one organization which is basically called the Auto ID Center. Now, they were an MIT, um, you know, funded organization, whatever you want to call it, um, which obviously worked with, I think it was about 103 different companies. So you've got some of the major companies working with them, like Gillette, um, Procter & Gamble, and the barcode people as well, the Uniform Code Council. So the idea came to actually build what's called the Internet of Things. Now, what the Internet of Things is, is basically this vision that the Auto ID Center has is that every product in the world is basically given an ele electronic product code. So it's actually called the EPC. So it is the next step to the actual barcode. So when you start looking at the reasons behind that, it is to really globally mesh every single product in the world onto the internet. And what makes it more um, concerning is that they've actually allocated a certain amount of digits for human beings. So when, you know, the Auto ID Center says, look, you know, we're building an internet of things, the things, the objects that they're speaking about include human beings. It's increasingly clear that in a biometric world, we are just cattle to be processed by people with access to the biometric databases in which we are all catalogued. And of course, the cataloging here is no different than the cataloging that went on at the concentration camps with the aid of IBM's Hollerith machines. 
Again, I'd like to recommend my listeners go to wethepeoplewillnotbechip.com for more information from that excellent website. And I'd also highly recommend a video called IBM Verichip and the Fourth Reich that puts that connection into its proper context and makes it very apparent why this must be avoided. Of course, the question then inevitably becomes, how do we oppose this biometric structure which is being erected as we speak? And the answer is, any way that we can. Quite simply, if we don't resist, there is no possibility of victory in this fight against the eugenicists seeking to catalog and control the entire human race. Of course, I'm not here to tell you how to act. I'm here simply informing you of the truth of what's going on in order to encourage and inspire people to act. So today I'd like to take a very illustrative example of this, which in fact took place in the 1990s, a time when very few people outside of the scientific community knew anything about biometrics or were concerned about this technology who was at the forefront of the fight against the implementation of biometric driver's licenses in the 1990s? Yes, it was Alex Jones. And in his 1997 movie, America Destroyed by Design, you can watch as he gets arrested by the Austin, Texas State Police as he goes to the state police office in order to try to get a driver's license. He brings with him Eight forms of identification, but that's not enough. Under laws that had recently been passed at the time, Jones, as well as every other Texan, was forced to submit to a digital photograph and a thumbprint in order to get the government-issued driver's license. As always, Alex Jones's words and protest are extremely effective, and I think it offers us one valuable example of how to stand up against this type of technology. Because as that 2004 BBC article shows us, they are analyzing our reactions in order to see what we will go along with and what we will not put up with. Throw yourself against the gears of the biometric machine or the control grid will be slotted into place. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me next week for episode 96 of the Corbett Report podcast, Lisbon Cometh. If I don't take this, if I don't take this, will I not be penalized for not having a driver's license, by not being able to cash a check, by being given tickets, that if I don't pay those tickets, I'll be taken to jail. I can't travel out of state. I can't get on board an airplane. And the media is talking about thumb scanning to travel. You're working with the foreign banks and the military-industrial complex. This is all their idea. Read the Military War College from 1968. They planned this. Just because you lay around doesn't mean it's not true. This is not a publicity stunt. I was a lot happier years ago before I got into all this garbage. I'm sick of sheep laying down. I wish you'd get up and do something. Makes me want to vomit. Our forefathers went to World War II and World War I and fought the Civil War to end slavery, and it means nothing to y'all. We're a bunch of yellow-belly weaklings. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of people laying down like a bunch of jellyfish and rationalizing what's going on. People ought to be ashamed of themselves.
a government property. And I will arrest the first man who tries to burn one. <laughs>